0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you have set us free for freedom. You have set us free by your death and resurrection to receive new life and to live fully into that life A flourishing Holy Spirit, we pray. Help us to stand firm to resist the desires of the flesh, to resist the urge to submit to a new yoke of slavery. Spirit, speak to us now by your word. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. From time to time, our church calendar and our civic calendar meet in these stimulating ways. So, for instance, this Sunday on the American calendar sits right in between last Sunday, which was Juneteenth, and the weekend following, the, the weekend coming up, which is Independence Day celebration. And here are these two national holidays, one very old and original, one quite new but still great, and they're devoted to freedom, right? Juneteenth being the day when the Emancipation Proclamation finally made its official way to all the states of the Union, liberating the enslaved, and then you have Independence Day, which, of course, marks colonial America's flamboyant break with His Majesty the King. But it's smack in the middle of these two freedom holidays that we hear in today's lectionary Paul's Gospel presentation. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But Freedom is this difficult concept to pin down. In our day and age freedom most often refers to the absence of restraint an action is free if it is uncompelled and unimpeded but even here we immediately find disagreement as to what exactly counts as restraint and what exactly counts as freedom because we can't remove every restraint that would be chaos so we have to start having this debate about what kinds of things need to be restrained and what sorts of liberties need to be preserved and so you end up with questions that we endlessly struggle over, right? Am I free if I can't buy or carry a gun whenever and wherever I desire? Am I free if I can't marry whomever I desire? And restraint doesn't just mean being prevented. You can also be restrained by the ties of obligation, even chosen obligations, right? So am I free as a citizen if I have to pay taxes? Or am I free if I have to stay married till death do us part? Am I free if I have to carry a pregnancy to term? You all have surely heard the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision of this week. And I don't mean to relitigate the whole debate, right? But, but that debate over abortion in this country has long been a struggle over the nature of freedom. And you, you've heard the pro-abortion mantra, right? My body, my choice. This assertion that the body is an inviolable realm of freedom right, that that cannot be restrained. I can do with it as I please. And I saw a tweet this week which just said it explicitly, right? Abortion is essential, is what it said. Abortion is health care. Abortion is liberation. Abortion is freedom. What clearer demonstration do we need of the abject emptiness of modern conceptions of freedom if this is what it ends with? To be unrestrained and ending the life of an unborn child is not freedom. It may well be the absence of restraint, but it reveals that the absence of such restraints is not freedom, it's actually pandemonium. It's hell. It's anti-freedom. It's actually subjection to the deepest, darkest forces of death. So when we think of freedom just as the absence of restraint, we're actually left rudderless, completely unable to make sense of what freedom is actually for. Right? Freedom from only creates this vacuum into which a thousand demons can run in and set up shop trying to convince you that freedom is actually for X or Y or Z and maybe you don't even need demons to do it, right? If you're feeling free but directionless, there's a horde of salespeople and gurus who have just the diet, just the exercise plan, the perfect decluttering agenda, just the right prepackaged set of oils or vitamins or books or charms which will set you free into a perfect and full life. There are a thousand ideologies that are eager to claim your freedom for their cause, and they promise you fulfilled life as a reward, right? Well, of course you're feeling tired. Of course you're feeling unenergized. Of course you feel bounded in. Have you tried democratic socialism or paleoconservatism? Have you tried environmentalism or maybe techno-futurism? Don't you know that minimalism is freedom? Don't you know that maximalism is freedom? Have you considered joining Team Red or Team Blue? I'm not saying all these things are worthless or even necessarily bad, but they make for absolutely insufficient visions of what freedom is for. So it turns out that freedom, this thing that we all love, is actually a problem. And not only is there the initial problem of bondage, the problem that people are denied freedom from, oppression and enslavement and debts and more, there's also the problem that when we actually get to exercise freedom, we have no idea what it's for. Even when we get a taste of freedom from restraint, we quickly discover that we just arrive at a new kind of bondage. Because when we're free to actually get what we desire, it's not long before we recognize that we desire things that oppress or use others. We desire things that trap us in cycles of addiction and falsehood and pain. When we're free to pursue our desires, it ends up looking a lot like Well, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. It looks like idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strife and jealousy. It looks like anger. It looks like rivalries and dissensions and divisions. It looks like envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. We think that we're free, but we find ourselves enslaved again to deeper and more insidious forces. So freedom presents us with a problem. Yet here in Galatians 5, which we heard read this morning, Paul is preaching. He's in full-on preacher mode, saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So what is this freedom? Here might be the solution to the problem of freedom. Here's the message of freedom that we need to hear. Christ has set us free. That must mean that there was some kind of bondage, something we need to be freed from. But he's also set us free for freedom, There's some positive vision of freedom, some Jesus-shaped, spirit-secured liberty that belongs to the Christian. So let's start where Paul starts. If Christ sets us free, it must be the case that before Christ we were not, in fact, free. We actually need freedom from something, and we do. Both Scripture and experience teach us clearly that every single person, you and me and everyone you've ever met, is born into the bondage of sin and death. At the beginning of Galatians, Paul says that we live in this present evil age from which we must be delivered. And and the thing that makes it a present evil age, he says in Galatians 4, is that we were enslaved to those things that are not by nature gods. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's sin, death, and the devil. Jesus said that everyone who practices sin is a slave to the power of sin, and everyone who sins is surely going to receive the wages of sin, the natural consequence of sin, which is death. That's what the scriptures teach us, but I have little doubt that you know personally what this feels like. You know what it is to know what's good, but to be unable to choose it. You know what it is to do the very thing that you don't want to do, to do the very thing that you promised yourself you'd never do again. You know what bondage to sin, death, and the devil is. And the first part of the gospel proclamation is this that Jesus, the Messiah, has defeated sin, death, and the devil. They no longer have authority. They no longer have the final word over those who belong to Jesus. Salvation is God's decisive action on your behalf and on behalf of the whole world. Romans 8 tells us that God's God's liberation, God's freeing act is going to grow until the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and and it will obtain the glory of the children of God. Because by dying on our behalf, Jesus has borne our sins and the manifold pains and penalties of that sin, most ultimately death, Jesus died in our likeness, and then by the power of his divinity rose again and thereby defeated the power that death has over us and over human nature. He's drained the cup of our suffering to the dregs. And that means that everyone who is united to Jesus by faith and baptism joins with Jesus in his death and much more than joining him in his death in his new life. For if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will surely be united in a resurrection like his, because Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he now lives, he lives unto God. And it's that same life that he offers you and gives to you by the seal of the Spirit. Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So you, believer, have been decisively set free. Sin no longer has a hold on you. Death no longer has a final claim on you. The devil will shrink back from you at the mention of the Jesus to whom you belong. These are the promises of Scripture that we're invited to receive with faith and trust. But perhaps you've noticed, as every Christian eventually does, soon does, that you don't always feel that freedom. Your sins still nip at your heels, Or if you're honest, sometimes it feels like sin is holding your leash. The devil and his demons still feel mighty creative in their attempts to tempt you and coax you or outright oppress you. What's going on with that? I thought I was freed from these things. If the victory is won, why am I still at war? Where's the promise of freedom? And there's a dense cluster of reasons for for the already but not yet experience of the Christian life there's this dense cluster of reasons for why why we have actually been set free but we don't yet feel the fullness of that freedom and it would take a long time to unpack all of that but Paul focuses in on one reason so that's the one we're going to look at today remember the problem of freedom even when we're freed from restraint Even when we can pursue our own desires without intervention, we find ourselves enslaved again. So it's not only the powers and principalities of sin, death, and the devil that we need liberation from, we need liberation also from the passions of our flesh, which means that you can be set free, you can be brought through God's mighty action and forgiving love into the freedom of the Christian life, but then you can compromise and you can crawl back and you can reject that freedom. Remember Israel in the wilderness. They are dramatically liberated in the exodus from Egyptian bondage. They're mightily and finally delivered from their oppression. The victory is won. The Egyptians are buried in the sea. They're set free from Egypt, and they're set free for the worship of Yahweh. But what happens almost immediately? They encounter a little bit of suffering. They start to doubt. They grumble, and they start to think they just might want to return to Egypt, where at least there was meat to eat. And before long, they're worshiping idols. And this same temptation haunts Christians. It's why Paul wrote Galatians to the church in Galatia. This beloved church to whom Paul announced the gospel of freedom, they're now entertaining the idea. They're now thinking about submitting again to a yoke of slavery. And there are actually two kinds of yoke to which liberated Christians are tempted to submit. First, there's the one that Paul is primarily concerned with in Galatians. He's worried that Christians will trade in their freedom and instead immediately submit again to the law. This gets a little bit tricky because the law was given as a guardian and as an aid to covenant keeping, and so the law is good. Jesus affirms the goodness of the law, but while the law showed us what was good to do, It didn't give us the power to actually do that good thing. And so the good law was given to a people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. So instead of life, the law ends up bringing to dead people condemnation and death and the curse of the law. But the law is fulfilled perfectly in Christ who lives the life of, of perfect righteousness to which the law points and which we could not. And, and not only that, he bears the curse of the law, the death to which the law condemns us on the cross, and in so doing, he secures and then provides new life to us through the Spirit. So that same Spirit who in the beginning animated was the animating breath in Adam's lungs is now given to believers and breathes life into our dry bones and actually makes us alive So Paul is warning the the church in Galatia, you've been made alive. You've been set free from the curse of the law, but like Israel after the Exodus, you're not going to know what to do with that freedom. You're going to be ill-equipped and and vice-riddled at the beginning, and you're going to start looking around for some sort of comfortable, familiar bondage. And in Galatia, that comfort was being offered by the Judaizers, right? They knew exactly what to do if you had freedom. If you want to belong to God's justified people, You needed to do what God's people had been doing for a long time. You needed to become Jewish. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to keep the law. But Paul is adamant here. The way that God's people are made right with God, the way that God's people are made alive, has changed forever with the arrival and the salvation of Jesus the Messiah. And so the Galatians can't go back to the yoke of the law, right? The law is still good, but it's actually worthless and detrimental if you treat it like the way to be made right with God. And if you start making adherence to legalism, if you start making adherence to the law mandatory for belonging to God's people, what you're doing is preaching an anti-gospel. You're saying Christ is not the way to be reconciled to God. Because now that Jesus the Christ has come, now that Jesus has defeated death and raised up the possibility of new life, belonging to God means being united to Jesus by faith in the seal of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first yoke that we're tempted to go back to. There's this temptation to throw your freedom away, to throw your life and the Spirit away, and to exchange it for legalism, to exchange it for bondage to the law, which can show you what's right, but can't make you alive. But there's this other temptation too. There's the temptation to take your newfound freedom and to use it as an excuse to do whatever you want to do. Paul says you were called to freedom... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So there are things that you can do with your Christian freedom that actually will destroy it, that will immediately subject you to the same forces which killed you in the first place. And the law spoke against these very things, and rightfully so. But again, the law itself is a teacher. The law can show us what's right to do. But it can't actually prevent you from running headfirst into those sins, right? Rules can be good, but rules are not agents. They don't actually do the good or the bad things that have consequences. Persons do. People do. You do. So rules can point you and guide you and direct you. But they do that so that you can actually live, so that you can actually do what is good and right. And here we're starting to finally arrive at an idea of what freedom is for. One way to say it is that God's liberation comes with a vocation. God frees you because He has a calling for your life. Lasting freedom, it turns out, isn't just the absence of restraint. Lasting freedom has a certain shape. God has called you forth out of bondage so that you might live and live in a certain way that you might live for something in particular. But what is that something? Well, the Scriptures say that Jesus has set you free so that you might be holy and blameless and righteous and true. These are ways of saying that that Christ has set you free that you might live a full and flourishing human life that you might be virtuous, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These aren't laws. These aren't laws to be dutifully followed. These are virtues. These are things that are supposed to become a part of your character, a part of your nature. and, And these are actually the parts of you that are going to last into eternity, right? Love does not pass away. Peace does not pass away. Joy does not pass away. These things that we cultivate in the life of the Spirit, these virtues are going to stay with us forever. They're part of the perfectly human character which the Spirit is forming in you. We call them, when you put them all together, Christ-likeness. God sets you free so that you can be like Christ. God sets you free so that you can be a saint. If you want a concise definition of freedom, it might be this. Sainthood is freedom. And from this perspective, we can start to see what the law was for all along. I don't make rules for my children, or teachers don't make rules for their students so that they'll spend their whole life following rules. That's not the goal. That's not why rules are created you make rules so that those to whom you are te- those whom you are teaching internalize those rules start to recognize that this is the actual shape of reality this is how to pursue what's good and they become a part of you they become a part of our children they become a part of our students they become a part of us so that we can then pursue the actual goods that the laws are pointing to not so that we'll have a perfect like record not so that there's no black marks on the things that we like i didn't do envy this week i didn't do like idolatry for a few days. No, it's, it's so that we can actually pursue and do what is good. What, what does this freedom look like? Let's think of an analogy. The best analogy I can think of for what this life of freedom is supposed to look like is the freedom of the virtuoso. So think of, think of a pianist, right? When you learn an instrument like the piano, you start by having to submit to rules. You have to know the nature of reality. There's an instrument in front of you. It works a certain way. It doesn't work in other ways. There's laws to how music works and fits together. And so you have to start by submitting to those rules. You learn and practice scales over and over. You practice finger positions and runs and phrasing and dynamics until the memory is in your muscles. It's laborious. It's a long work. But you don't do all of that work. You don't learn the rules of music or the rules of the piano so that you can play scales forever, right? You do it so that you can internalize the order until it becomes a part of you, and and part of you which then allows the free and powerful expression of that which is most true. So, when I sit down at a piano, I'm not free. Well, well, I'm free to play the handful of songs by The Fray that I, like, played obsessively in the eighth grade. Like, I can really, I can jam on those. But when I sit down at a piano, I'm not free, and I'm certainly not free in the way that David Templin or Dave Covington is free, right? Because when they sit down at the piano, having internalized the rules, having internalized the law, having having it written on their hearts or in their fingers, so to speak, right? They can sit down and they can create and display beauty and glory and truth. And this is, what it's, this is what it's supposed to be like to be a Christian. We're supposed to become these virtuosos of virtue who play these tunes of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're meant to play these things like they're the songs that are in our heads and in our hearts. But don't hear me. Don't hear Paul say that God has set you free just so that you can get your moral act together. That's not what I'm trying to say, right? Our Lord Jesus doesn't put away all hurtful things from us and then say, all right, now figure it out from here, right? Salvation is not God saying, let's take it from the top. It's not God saying, all right, I've sort of wiped away the record, try again. If the freedom of sainthood is up to us, we are going to be right back in bondage. But the freedom that we've been given by our Lord Jesus is secured and it is deepened and it is written in our hearts and in our minds by God's personal presence, by God's provision, by God's constant companionship in the person of the Holy Spirit. Who makes us alive. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, the scriptures say, so that we can stand firm against the temptations of the flesh, so that we can keep in step with the Spirit. But that raises the question, right? How does the Spirit help us? How do, I, how do I get the Spirit to help me? How do we keep in step with the Spirit who's given us life? How do we stay free? How do we become these virtuosos? How do we become saints? And I don't think we need to overcomplicate it. The Holy Spirit is always and everywhere at work in manifold ways that we will only know in glory, but he also promises to be reliably at work in these ordinary and dependable ways. Our passage says that the Spirit is absolutely opposed to the desires and works of the flesh, which means that part of the Spirit's work is convicting your conscience and convicting your heart. Walking by the Spirit means first that you must oppose the desires of the flesh, So when you tolerate or when you coddle or permit the desires of the flesh to keep residence within you, when we do anything less than put our wicked desires to a swift and merciless death, we prove our souls to be thorny soil, and the promise of true freedom is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life so that the fruit does not mature So with the Scripture, let me warn you, do not quench the Spirit and do not grieve the Spirit through intentional, habitual sin. Do not kill your conscience. Do not suppress the law that God has written on your heart. Confess your sin. Receive God's free forgiveness. Take the Spirit's correction and repent. But even there, you might be tempted to hear, right? Like, okay, so the Spirit convicts me so that then I can get my act together. No, no. The repentance, too, is a work of the Spirit within you. The Spirit helps with your repentance. And He does that by pointing you to the Son. The Spirit points us again and again to the Son. He testifies that your salvation, your right standing with God, the fact that you are loved and accepted by God, accepted by the Father, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your law-keeping or your perfect moral record or your moral performance. It depends upon the perfection and obedience of the Son who loves you and gave Himself for you, and would call you brother and call you sister. And the Spirit is doing this work where? Well, wherever He pleases, right? But also reliably, the Spirit works in the church, in the proclamation and reception of the Word, in confession and absolution, in making the Son present and in joining the body together at the Eucharistic table. The Spirit is working here reliably, every time we gather. So let me exhort you that if you've been on the fence about church or have considered it optional or vestigial to your spiritual life, it's time to commit to faithfully joining the life of the church. And that's not because I have good things to say or Father Daniel is going to put your life perfectly together or Father Michael is the fount of all wisdom, although he's the fount of much wisdom, right? That's not the reason to join yourself to the church. It's because the Spirit is here. The Spirit promises to be here, not always in ways that are dramatic, not even always in ways that are perceptible, but, but He promises to be here. And He's certainly here in ways that will shape you over time, like rain on sandstone. And that's in part because God's people are here. The Spirit is at work not just in you, but in all of these people around you. And growth in virtue, growth in likeness, it's not an individual quest, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of these virtues are meant to be modeled and taught and practiced and corrected and encouraged and displayed in community. They become characteristic not only of individuals who are being shaped by the Spirit, but of the communities that do them together. We become saints together by the work of the same Spirit. Let's close with just one example of what a life of true freedom is a life lived in step with the Spirit might look like. Let's consider once more the issue of abortion. Now, the deliberate ending of an unborn human life, a life that is formed and fashioned by God, is a grave evil. The church has always taught this. Now, this does not mean it's a grave evil that's beyond the realm of forgiveness, right? If any of you here this morning have have been complicit in thought, word, or deed in the sin of abortion, there's forgiveness for you, right? Repent of your sin, confess your sin, and God will forgive you and restore you to new life. But we can say unreservedly that it is a grave evil. There is absolutely a moral law against it. And praise God, now and soon in many states, there's going to be civic laws against it. But as Galatians has taught us, to have laws preventing evil is not the fullness of freedom. The Dobbs decision of this past week is only a long belated first step in cultivating a full culture of life with the, which the scriptures commend. Making abortion illegal is a good thing, but it's not itself the flourishing fruit of the Spirit. The freedom for which Christ has set us free looks like the virtues, right? Let's consider that fruit of the Spirit. It looks like sacrificial love for the sake of the unborn and also for mothers and fathers and for the orphaned and the abandoned. It looks like joy. Right, Joy rather than judgment or scolding at the news of a new life. And joy rather than annoyance at the presence of children in our midst. It looks like peace. It looks like peace when a woman facing the fear of a lonely pregnancy or an impoverished motherhood is met with a community of generosity, of resources and support. It looks like patience. It looks like long-suffering patience with the difficult, difficult task of raising children. It looks like kindness in providing for the needs of the needy, the needs of those who are terrified at the prospect of being responsible for a child. It looks like the goodness of adoption and fostering. It looks like faithfulness in marriages and families and friendships, a refusal to abandon our responsibilities and our neighbors. It looks like gentleness with those who suffer the pain that so often attends the creation of new life. With those who experience infertility or those who miscarry. And it looks like self control as the sexual ethic that we preach and teach, but most importantly, practice. And this is just what the fruit of the Spirit might look like in one area of life. This is just one area that we might act like the saints that God has freed us to be. And God calls you not to be a saint in general, right? He doesn't say, all right, now go be a saint. He calls you to be the particular saint that you are meant to be. I can't be St. Anselm. I can't be St. Augustine. I can only be St. Zach. And God calls you to be St. Daniel, St. Nathan, St. Jean, right? St. Beckett and Brendan. He calls you to be the saint that you are meant to be. He doesn't liberate you so that you can display some sort of general love or faithfulness or gentleness. But to practice love and to practice faithfulness, and to practice gentleness in your actual life, and with your actual relations. We have been set free, brothers and sisters. Christ has set us free, so stand firm, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen.